Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from 2 Kings 19, verses 9 through 19. And as I mentioned a bit ago, uh, we are reading this this week in 1 Kings, next week in 2 Kings, and we can kind of see what happens in the kingdom of Israel, kind of in its declining days before the exile. So you can see here where we are in that as we're nearing the end of 2 Kings here. So it's kind of nearing the end of, um, of Israel's time of kings before they go into exile. And uh, this particular story takes place when um, the forces of Assyria are threatening, uh, are threatening Judah and Jerusalem in particular. And so we have Hezekiah, who's the king of Jerusalem and who is, uh, well, getting a little worried about this. So uh, before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made, and we thank you for your word that you've given to us. We pray that you would help us to hear it, to really hear it, that we would not um, merely gain information, but, Lord, that through your word we would experience transformation that you would use um, your word in our lives today and each day to continue to form us into the people that more and more reflect the image of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. This is 2 Kings 19, verses 9 through 19. Now, Sennacherib received a report that Tirhaka, the king of Cush, was marking out was marching out to fight against him. So he sent, so he again sent messengers to Hezekiah with this word. Say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Surely you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely. And will you be delivered? Did the gods of the nations that were destroyed by my predecessors deliver them? The gods of Gozan, Haran, Rezef, and the people of Eden who were in Tel Asar? Where is the king of Hamath or the king of Arpad? Where are the kings of Leir, Sepharvaim, Hena, and Eva? That wasn't as easy as I made it look. All right. So these are the things they are maybe concerned with. Verse 14, Hezekiah received a letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord, the God of Israel, Enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them. For they were not gods, but only wood and stone, fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord... Our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. That is where we will stop. But if you continue reading, you'll see how God answers that prayer in some pretty remarkable ways. But turning now to our New Testament lesson, our gospel lesson from Matthew chapter 5, and I put the wrong verses in there. It should say verses 1 through 12. This is the introduction to is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And 
we're hearing here are also what are known as the Beatitudes, those uh, blessings. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to start this morning by asking you a question. That question is, would you rather... Would you rather be criticized or complimented? What do you think? Criticized or complimented? (laughs) And I'm not asking so that I know how to proceed in the sermon. (laughs) It it depends, right? It depends. Um, Proverbs. Make sure I got this right. Proverbs 26. How did I lose that already? No. Proverbs 27, verse 6. says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Yeah. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. And so it depends. Would you rather be criticized or complimented? And it depends on the person who's doing it and why they're doing it, right? If this is somebody, and you've probably experienced this, where you've had a friend who tells you something as criticism, it is constructive criticism, and they are critiquing you in some way because they care about you and they want good things for you, and they see that the way that you're going, the things that you're doing, are actually causing you more harm, whether in the short term or the long term, and they point these things out to you, and still your first reaction is, who do you think you are? (laughs) Lay off. Come on. What do you think you're doing? And yet, if you understand their motive behind it, if you know them well, if you have this relationship with them, where you know they're not saying these things to hurt you, but to help you, you understand it's more like the doctor who cuts you as a part of surgery instead of uh, an attacker who cuts you with a knife to hurt you. When you understand the difference, then you can receive those wounds and you can say, look, it still hurts. (laughs) Maybe I needed a bit more anesthetic, but I understand it and I can receive that and that's good. On the other hand, then there's the, the compliments and the flattery from somebody who really, they, they just want to take you down. And if the, um, if the flattery is a way that they can get close enough to do it, they'll do it. Now, what do you think? 
with those two in mind, would you rather be <laughs> criticized or complimented? I hope if those are the two options, you'd say, I'd rather be criticized. I'd rather be criticized by a friend than complimented by an enemy. You know? Unfortunately, when I first asked the question, you probably assumed that it was the opposite because you generally assume that criticism is going to come from an enemy and that compliments are going to come from our friends. That's not always the way it is. But I hope we can distinguish there. And this morning, we actually have a story in, um, in Acts chapter 19 where we have some of this um, criticism going on. Some of it is valid, good, helpful, constructive. Some of it is not at all. And so we're going to learn to distinguish between those uh, this morning. This is Acts chapter 19, verses 23 through 41. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we can just talk about it more in general. But pay close attention as I'm reading through it, because I'm not going to just talk through each line as uh, we sometimes do. This is in Ephesus. This is where um, Paul has been for the last two years. And it says, About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says, he says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger that not only our trade, that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not, to, and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is... We are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there is no reason for it. After he'd said this, he dismissed the assembly. Okay, so just summing up what is happening here. 
is we have some people in Ephesus who are quite upset because the message that Paul and his companions have been preaching is getting in the way of what they are doing throughout, um, <laughs> well, in, in all their lives. Ephesus is the center uh, of the worship of Artemis, the Ephesian version, anyway, of Artemis. And this is something where people would travel in to Ephesus. They would visit the temple, which was, the temple of Artemis was known as one of the, um, the wonders, seven wonders of the world, the ancient world. It was a large place. It was pretty spectacular, and people would come from all over. And then Demetrius, you know, one of the things he's doing, selling souvenirs to all the tourists who come in. This is his livelihood. And so when Paul is preaching this message that Jesus is Lord, and all these other gods are no gods at all, you think that might have an an impact on Demetrius' job? and on his uh, economic situation, and maybe even on the economics of all of Ephesus. And so we have, here are the two criticisms that are going on. One is Paul's critique of the city of Ephesus. And the other is Demetrius' criticism of Paul and what he's doing. So here's where we have to see, can we tell the difference? <laughs> What Paul, or what Demetrius says about Paul is actually right. I don't know if you noticed that. But his accusation against Paul is that he's saying that, um, he says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. True or false? That's true. He is accusing Paul of doing exactly what Paul is doing. And then he says, there's a danger that if this message actually catches on, which it seems to be doing, that people are going to stop worshiping Artemis. Is that true? It is. Is it a problem? It depends. It depends on what your highest value is. If his highest value is truth, if his highest value is actually worshiping a true God, This should be good news if people would stop worshiping a false god and come to worship the true and living God. That should be good news. If his highest value, however, is not the truth, but his highest value is economics, if his highest value is the money he's making off people worshiping a false god, this is going to be a problem for him. And that is apparently what the situation is. And so, of course, who does he call together? Does he go first to, uh, to the local courts and say, oh, look, I got a complaint about this guy, Paul? No. Who does he go to? His fellow craftsmen. People who also stand to lose financially if this message catches on. So he goes to them and says, hey, we got a problem. And then they start getting upset. And when they start getting upset, then everybody starts getting upset. And <laughs> I love that line in there that there, a lot of people don't even know why they're there. They're all shouting. They're all part of it. They, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you've been a part of something like this if you've ever attended a sporting event uh, with rabid fans and you don't understand the sport. <laughs> if you've ever like gone to a hockey match or something, you go to a hockey game, and you don't really understand hockey, and they're like, that was icing. And you're like, that doesn't even make sense. They're all on the ice. What is this? 
and then uh, but you're there with people who are really fans of the game, and they're all yeah, they're cheering when things go well, and they're booing when things go bad, and you start finding yourself caught up in it. And you're like, I don't even know why I'm yelling. <laughs> that seems like what's going on with the Ephesians at this point is, you know, these people are really upset. They seem to know what they're talking about. I don't know what's going on, but they they seem like they do, so I'll just join with them in that. And then they end up chanting for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. We have a rule in our house. No chanting. (laughs) It is is one of the greatest rules we've ever invented. (laughs) I wish it applied universally. What, What good ever comes from chanting? Anyway. Uh, so, so here they are. They, uh, the Jewish people actually push Alexander in front. They're like, look, get up there. And I don't know what they're going to, what instructions are shouting to him, but probably they're wanting to say something along the lines of, we're not the ones responsible for this. You know, look, this, this is those Christians. We're not Christians. It's those guys over there. Please don't confuse us with them. We were just fine to live in, uh, in Ephesus and, you know, let you guys do your thing and we'll do our thing and we'll just worship what we know is the one true God and let you, you know, do whatever you want to do. It's those Christians who are messing up your business. It's probably what, uh, what Alexander would have said, but he doesn't even get a chance. He doesn't get a chance because nobody's listening to reason at this point. This is probably also why um, you have Paul who wants to get up there and say something along the lines of, yes, this is true, what Demetrius is accusing us of. But let me tell you why this is good news for you. Let me tell you why it would be okay for your economic situation to change. Let me tell you about what it means not only uh, to be be followers of the one true God, but to be blessed in a way that you've never even known to this point. Let me tell you the good news about Jesus. He doesn't get a chance to do that. Why not? We talked a couple weeks ago about when you're in an argument with somebody and you realize that you've taken the wrong position, but in in that split-second moment where you know that you're in the wrong, but you commit to it anyway, you're like, nope, I'm going to see this thing through. I'm going to keep arguing even though I know I've got it wrong. And we said at that moment, the argument's over. It really is. And there's no point in continuing it. And that's where we see the same thing here. If Paul goes before the crowd, are they going, is he going to get a hearing? Is he going to get to lay all this out and explain to them? No. I mean, they're shouting down Alexander. What do you think they're going to do to Paul? If all this is being stirred up because of Paul... Here's what I imagine. We'll see if this strikes you as uh, likely. What I imagine is Paul gets up to speak, and you hear a voice from the crowd shout, There he is! That's the guy! Get him! (laughs) Now, if one person yells that, what's going to happen in a crowd of multiple thousands of people who are there? Is everybody going, I don't know, hang on, let's hear what he has to say. When you have that many people, even if 95% of them say, well, let's give them a hearing. All it takes is the 5% who are really riled up. They can do a lot of damage real fast. And we've seen that in riots in our own country over the years. Where it doesn't take a lot of people who are upset (laughs) uh, to the point that they are past 
let's think about this. And they're just doing things. And cause a lot of damage really fast. And so for his own good, uh, Paul's friends say, no, I'm sorry, man. We're not letting you in there. You are not going in there. Um, and so the only way that this actually ends up getting solved is when the city clerk stands up and says, all right, maybe now we'll get somewhere. So they stop, they listen to him, and he says, stop it. Stop it. What you're doing here is not solving anything. You're just causing more problems. You're trying to, uh, to get rid of Paul, but you're not doing it. You're not going about it the right way. Is there, there's a right way to go about it. There's just a wrong way to go about it. You're going about it the wrong way. And so finally everybody stops and they go on. Now, one of the things for us today to think about is this idea of being a part of a mob that gets all upset about something and just moves forward kind of without thinking. When I was a teenager, there was an awful lot of talk about peer pressure. And that was apparently one of those things that teenagers really need to be concerned about is peer pressure and how to stand up against the peer pressure that you're going to be facing as a teenager. And then I got older, and as it turns out, that's not just a thing for teenagers. (laughs) But adults face all kinds of peer pressures as well. And if we aren't guarded against, uh, against this sort of thing, it is something we will fall into. To just going along with what everybody else is doing without determining if this is something we ought to be going along with or not. I don't know. They're upset. Maybe I should be upset too. And we go along. This is, uh, this is something we need to be mindful of. Do we just join in uh, unthinkingly with whatever's going on? Or are we more critical in what we join in with? Another thing with this particular passage is why this got started at all. And we talked about the issue of uh, Demetrius and his friends who realize they're going to lose out economically. But this didn't start when Paul arrived in town. You notice that? This starts after Paul's been there for a couple of years. When he's been there a couple of years and he's been telling people about this and he's been living in the city, living this out, people are accepting the message, they are responding, they are beginning to live this out. And that's why we see at the verse 23, about that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. about the way. This is what uh, Christianity was known as early on, is the way. Because the Christians were living differently than everybody else. They were living differently than the Greeks. They were living differently than the Romans. They were living differently even than Jewish people. They were not content to say, look, we're going to worship the one true God. If you guys want to worship idols, you know what, have at it. The way of Christianity involved sharing this good news with everyone who needed to hear it. And if people are running after and chasing false gods, they need to hear that that's what's going on. And so when you have a group of people throughout Ephesus who are living this way and who are sharing this message, you can see how that becomes increasingly problematic 
for the Ephesians who are profiting off of Artemis and her temple. The Christians live differently in another way, too. And that is, um, they're actually part of the, of the city. They're not standing off at a distance talking to everybody about how bad those Ephesians are. They're Ephesians, too. They want Ephesus to do well as a city. But their definition of what it means to do well is very different. And so here's where I want to share a, um, an illustration comes from the book Center Church by Tim Keller. It's, uh, I was going to try to just summarize it for you, but I think it, reading it, the way he writes it, is uh, better than I could put it. But it's a really helpful way of thinking about all this. He's going to talk about contextualization. And that's just a way of talking about what it means to bring the message of the gospel into a culture in a way that the culture can understand it and be impacted by it. Okay? And so he says, let's turn to the world of demolition. Say you're building a highway and you want to remove a giant boulder. Imagine that. First, you drill a small shaft down into the center of the rock. Then you put explosives down the shaft into the core of the stone and detonate them. Got the picture, picture in mind? It says, if you drill the shaft but never ignite the blast, you obviously will never move the boulder. But the same is true if you only blast and fail to drill. Putting the explosives directly against the surface of the rock, you will simply shear off the face of it and the boulder will remain. All drilling with no blasting or all blasting with no drilling leads to failure. But if you do both of these, you will remove the rock. Okay, what does this have to do with contextualizing the gospel? It says, to contextualize with balance and successfully reach people in a culture, we, mo- we must both enter the culture sympathetically and respectfully, similar to drilling, and confront the culture where it contradicts biblical truth, similar to blasting. Following this? I hope so. If we simply blast away, railing against the evils of culture, we are unlikely to gain a hearing among those we seek to reach. Nothing we say to them will gain traction. We will be written off and dismissed. We may feel virtuous for being bold, but we will have failed to honor the gospel by putting it in its most compelling form. On the other hand, if we simply drill, affirming and reflecting the culture and saying things that people find acceptable, we will rarely see anyone converted. In both cases, we will fail to move the boulder. We may feel virtuous for being sensitive and open-minded, but we will have failed to honor the gospel by letting it speak pointedly and prophetically. It is only when we do our blasting on the basis of our drilling, when we challenge the culture's errors on the basis of something it believes, even rightly so, that we will see the gospel having an impact on people. Why do I share this? This is what's going on in Ephesus. This is why the situation was so explosive, to you continue that metaphor. They had been living in Ephesus for two years. The message had been spreading throughout the community, and it was to the point that they had done a lot of drilling. They knew the people of Ephesus. They were the people of Ephesus. They understood uh, the situation in Ephesus. But to really be Christian was not just to understand the situation, 
but to speak to the situation. This is why Demetrius had it right. He understood the message. He understood that the message that Paul was preaching was saying, the gods that you are (laughs) serving are no gods at all. He understood it. This means that the message had gotten through. Now, the response, that's a different thing. (laughs) But the message had gotten through. Demetrius understood what Paul was saying, and it's because he understood it that it got so explosive. This is where we go back to what we read in the end of uh, the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is saying this is the kind of thing that happens. We've seen this throughout the book of Acts. As people go into, a, into an area, they preach the message. Some people respond with great joy and accept the message of Jesus. And others don't. Others are more in the um, insulting and persecuting and trying to drive you out sort of uh, mindset. And that's what we find here. But the reason I think this one is a little different is this isn't upon a first hearing. This is because of the way, the way these people live, the way they just don't let up. They just won't let us keep going about our uh, idle business without causing problems for it by insisting on this, <laughs> insisting that their God is the one true God. Talked at the very beginning about rather be criticized or complimented? The criticism that um, Demetrius is giving to the church, he's giving because he just wants to take them down. Just get out of my way. Stop causing problems for me and my business. But what about the criticism that's coming from the church to his business? What's coming from him to the whole city of Ephesus? What's coming from him to the temple of Artemis? That's also criticizing. But it's not a get out of my way. It is a message of come receive the good news of Jesus, who loved you and died for you. Artemis did nothing. Let me tell you about the one who did, the one who made you, who loves you, who has come to bring you back. Demetrius and others might say, hey, you're messing up our, <laughs> our lives. Good. They need to be messed up if you're going to come to Jesus. Now, the other part of this, this is where we'll conclude. It would be very easy to look at Demetrius and his, um, his friends and say, their whole issue is worshiping idols. We're glad we don't do that. But if you'll look closer, his issue is not worshiping idols. But as always the issue of the idols is that people 
are using the idols to get what's their real idol. What they are using to get, they're using Artemis. They're using the shrines they're making to sell to others to get money. To stabilize the economy. To take pride in their city. There are things beyond the idol itself. And so the challenge for us is to look at what that is for us first, to let the gospel drill into our hearts and then blast away where it needs to. That we would be critiqued where we need to be critiqued. Where we would find those things in our lives that we are putting ahead of God in our lives. The things that we are chasing after that are just a chasing after the wind. And then, doing, having <laughs> had this in our own lives, to not let this story just be a story from long ago and far away. But let this be a story that happens in El Dorado as well. Maybe without the chanting. <laughs> but that the message of the way, the way that the Christians in El Dorado and Sonora and Cristobal, San Angelo, the way that we are living out this message would be contextualized. That people would understand it. That they would understand it in a way that they have to deal with it. They can't just live alongside it and keep going about their business, doing the things they've always done, the way they've always done it. But they have to do something about it either to accept or reject. We can't just blast away at those who don't believe, but nor can we just affirm that everything everyone does is fine. How can we get the message, the good news of Jesus, to those who need to hear it in a way they can hear it, in a way that they then have a decision to make? Are we going to be those who compliment or criticize? Or can we be those who do both well? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.